Welcome to the Basement Astrologers, coming to you live from the middle of the Middle West in above average St. Paul, Minnesota, and from the beautiful Pacific Northwest in Puyallup, Washington. My name's Kip from Rudomania Astrology, and with me is Meredith from Earthling Astrology. Hello. And we are coming to you on June 14th, 2019 at 8.18 a.m. Pacific Coast Time. And like two really smart astrologers, we decided to have our first day of taping two episodes on the Mars-Saturn opposition with the nodes completely involved in the opposition. Yay, we're really smart. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be passionate and fiery discussion today, I'm sure. Mercury's in there too. We're going to break down lots of structures. Yeah. And we'll do it emotionally because (laughs) (laughs) because Mars is in Cancer. It's going to be outstanding. So uh, the first uh, of these two episodes we're taping, and I suppose you're probably going to listen to this in like three weeks, so it won't matter to you, is going to be the third part of our Cosmos and Psyche Marathon. Um, Cosmos and Psyche, if you're unfamiliar, is a book uh, by Richard Tarnas. Uh, Richard Tarnas has a PhD in uh, lots of fun stuff. I know his undergrads in psychology from Harvard. Um, I don't actually know exactly what Dr. Tarnas um, is a PhD in. I know that he is a professor of, of philosophy um, and kind of a cultural philosophy. Do you have, can you help me fill that in at all, Meredith? Uh, no, you know more about him, but I will pull him up right now. I mean, he's wicked smart. Just know that. And he's very intellectual and he does his research. Holy shit, does he do his research um, for like decades to put this book together. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Cosmos and Psyche is definitely uh, a pillar of the astrological community. I would say that it's a tent post of current, uh, of the canon of, uh, of current astrology. It's He's one of those guys that I sat down on a lecture with Mark Jones. I brought this up on the pod before. <clears throat> a really really preeminent astrologer working right now. And Mark Jones spent five minutes talking about what an amazing human being Rick Tarnas was and how Dr. Tarnas, um, you know, made this huge sacrifice to the astrological community. So, so we really let off our, uh, our book talk with a, with a whopper. Yes. Um, what this book represents is <clears throat> Richard Tarnas going through the, um, the outer planets and their historical um, oppositions, squares, and conjunctions. A lot of the focus of this book so far has been on Uranus and Pluto. Then we had a a big push of Pluto-Saturn. And what we're going to get to now is some historical examples of Uranus and Jupiter, and then uh, Uranus and Neptune. The thing that's really fascinating about the way in which Mr. Tarnas or Dr. Tarnas put this book together is that he previously wrote a book uh, called uh, something about the Western mind. Wow. This morning, I need the rest of this coffee Um, where he tracked Western history, especially Western. I mean, there's some world history in there, but I would say it's more focused on the West uh, using the the popular philosophies of the time or the predominant philosophies and philosophers of the time. And so when he writes this book, he does the same thing, but he uses these transits to the outer planets uh, and really digs into what happened when these transits took place and makes comparisons over time. And so what you end up getting is really rich descriptions of the signifiers of these planets 
in an archetypal sense. Rick Tarnas started archetypal astrology. And uh, <clears throat> and then you just get beat over the head for like 150 pages with really concrete examples throughout time um, that really sing in harmony with um, with these transits. Is that how you picked up and put down the book too, Meredith? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is history that I'm not familiar with. And you know me, I, I dig in and latch onto the more sciencey examples. So, I mean, I got sucked. In. I never even knew about, I mean, we can start with the Apollo moon landing, like what was going on back then in 1969. And he, uh, so in this, in this pod, we're discussing the last part of the book and we, we split it up into three parts. We're, we're going to be talking about, uh, hold on, parts six, seven, and eight today, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it was basically the last half of the book. And I liked this last half the best. <laughs> I don't know if it was more relatable to me. But yeah, I, I agree. Um, he basically describes the archetypes and then gives a shit ton of examples um, and historical examples. I mean, half of that I've never even heard of or authors I'm not familiar with, but just um, describing their work and how they relate to the planetary archetypes. That's funny because, of course, <laughs> all those uh, name drops are, are right in my wheelhouse, um, which is one of the things I've said this before. I appreciate about the book. He's really putting astrology within the Western intellectual canon. And he's he's saying all these great works and these turning points in Western thought and cultural art output are aligned with these planetary cycles. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to start here with with Jupiter Uranus. And this was our introduction in this, uh, in his book, Jupiter. So I want to just read his quick blurb on, on Jupiter. Throughout this historical development, Jupiter has been associated with the principle of expansion and magnitude, providence and plentitude, liberality, elevation and ascendancy, and with the tendency to experience growth and progress, success, honor, good fortune, abundance, aggrandizement, <laughs> excess, and inflation. We're really uh, talking about a planet that's associated with frequent associations with the realm of aspiration of culture, especially high culture, high principles, high learning, breadth of knowledge, liberal education, cultural irradiation, or um, growing bigger and grander. Now, there's definitely negatives of Jupiter. Things get too big. Jupiter doesn't care what it's making bigger. Uh, so if Jupiter uh, runs into um, a, maybe a, a malefic or a, uh, an episode in life uh, that you would rather um, maybe calm down a little bit, Jupiter can blow it up. One thing I love yeah. to say to clients when Jupiter comes in the first house is you can expect to put on some weight this year. Um, and it's pretty tried and true. Yep, that is uh, an example of an expansion. And I would say you, your waistline might expand um, during that kind of Jupiter transit. But yeah, he's normally associated with uh, good luck, good fortune. And I just say he's the big guy in the sky. He's a big guy in your chart and he will explode or not explode, but make bigger, expand whatever um, theme in your life and your chart that he's trekking through. So what we get when Jupiter comes in contact with Uranus, and with this chapter, he really stuck to the conjunction and the opposition. This is only a 14-year cycle. It's much shorter than the rest of the cycles he's dealing with. Um, you know, I guess uh, Saturn-Pluto is about 22 years. Is that right? Or no, it would be uh, no. 34 years. Yeah. Uh, this is a 14-year cycle, 
and then seven in between. So the opposition seven, the full cycle is 14. One of the things I think is going to be nice about this is we're going to have a chance to discuss some a couple recent uh, episodes of this cycle that, that we live through. And so that's helpful. Not just one dose uh, with like Uranus Pluto square, but a couple instances. So when we have Uranus um, and uh, Dr. Tarnas considers Uranus Prometheus, the light bringer, the, um, the one who um, individuates and explodes through culture, breaks free and, and brings uh, fire to earth. What, what he talks about is, and I'll quote him again, in world transit, the cyclical alignments of Jupiter and Uranus correlated consistently and con- with condensed waves of celebrated milestones of creative or emancipatory activity across many fields. Uh, and I think, I think that nails it, and he gives us so many examples. One of the things we're going to get to also is, is we did that whole show on um, Uranus relating to styles and uh, in pop culture. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was all loaded up when I started reading this thinking, oh, yeah, I have all these, you know, examples right in my head. I should pull up that research I did. And we really see that we see this again, this Uranus Jupiter um, conjunction and the opposition to a lesser extent as just tent poles in modern culture. I know you were bringing yep. that up. You found that, too, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, and I like uh, his use of Prometheus. Uh, you, I think, were the first one who told me that when we first met, uh, that Uranus is more of a Prome- Prometheus-type planet, um, and I, I, he, he, he repeat, he's Captain Repeat with that word throughout the book. So I, I like his description of Uranus. And um, what do, is there a particular event he describes that you want to start with, just as an example? Well, you brought up the moon landing, and he actually yeah. has the exact time in here, which is great. And of course, we would have the exact time of the moon landing. I mean, there were all these people watching it from Earth. So it's July 20th, 1969 at 4.18 p.m. Eastern time. And they counted it from Cape Canaveral, Florida. And what we see here is we see in the 10th house, so the place most public to the world, we have this amazing four-planet conjunction in the 10th house. And three of them are going to be really notable. So we have Jupiter, Uranus, This is what we're talking about, but also Pluto. So in 1969, one of the things that made that era so explosive, even more so than a number of other instances of this Uranus-Pluto conjunction is that we spent a chunk of time with Jupiter there too. And he really went into that and how big and explosive that era was. And it really was. I mean, we're still seeing the ramifications of that 1968-69 period. We are. It's such a, like, uh, I'm very drawn to that period in history, even though I wasn't alive yet. Um, There's just so many rich stories and culture was going crazy. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I didn't know this about the moon landing. I've never, uh, you know me, I'm more into people astrology, not event astrology, but this kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, Um, the moon is in there too. (laughs) Like there's a four planet conjunction during the Apollo moon landing. Their first one, I should say, July 20th. So that's Um, the crazy part, right? So you have, you have Uranus, uh, Jupiter, which is this breakthrough of culture, this individuation, grander, big achievement. And then you have Pluto there, transformative, powerful, which is ways you can describe this event, this landing on the moon. I mean, all of these nail it. 
it, it was transformative. It was individuating and uh, and diverging from the norm. I mean, we landed on a celestial body. It definitely was aggrandizing. It was a huge achievement for the United States. And then we have the moon. The moon was conjunct this entire mess. The, how literal can you get? This all happened on the moon. I mean, it's it's almost you can't make it up territory. Yeah, that kind of blew my mind. That was really cool. And he it's on page 304 in my book. Is it the same in yours? The, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the, okay, yeah. So if anyone uh, following along, that's page 304 if you wanted just a visual of uh, what was going on in the sky during the moon landing. So he, um, the way in which he talks about things, he he consistently repeats terms, as Meredith was pointing out. And so he talks for a long period of time about this Jupiter-Uranus conjunction or opposition happening during other cycles and ending up showing up as peak periods. And the way he breaks it down is he says, Jupiter, success. We see that scientific breakthrough, Uranus, breakthrough Uranus, Jupiter success, grand cultural honoring, Jupiter, an unexpected revolutionary change in human thought, Uranus. And he's going through a lot of the things we talked about as as being parts of progress during some of these other um, external long-term cycles, and then using this Jupiter Uranus as just like a you know, sticking the flag in the ground. I keep using that example, like, boom, we're here. You know, a- any of these spots could be the North Pole, but I'm choosing this, <laughs> this like one inch spot to put the flag down. Yeah. Um, he, uh, no, go ahead. Uh, no, you go. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to go. I don't want I don't know how to flow this conversation next. You're much better at that. Um, there's more stuff we want to talk about. Um, Ah, Jupiter Uranus. Um, yeah, why don't you dive in? So I just, I wanted to throw out some names because these are people that are going to be, um, at, at least a bunch of them are going to ring bells. But he points out to these really brilliant authors. I mean, people who ha- are part of the, the zeitgeist. And he points out Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. He wrote the first one, Jupiter Uranus. Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, was written in an op- at, at a conjunction and then through the looking ga- glass, the second movie, was, was written at the opposition or released. Then we have Tolkien. So Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings stuff over an extremely long period of time, but he didn't actually put it all together and release any of it until Jupiter Uranus were conjoined. So do you see how this cycle works? You have these people living in these powerful periods of time doing their work. And then there's this secondary trigger, this thing that pushes them forward. And we talked about the Uranus opposition, how this is often a time in people's lives when they have their big breakthrough. Here we're seeing people who that, who are part of culture, part of a movement, doing their work. And then there's this big trigger that, that almost forces them to push it forward. One final example the 1997 Uranus-Jupiter conjunction, that is when uh, J.K. Rowling uh, published the first of the Harry Potter series. Interestingly, the next conjunction, which happened in 2010, was when the Deathly Hallows movie came out. So the last movie in the series. Or the last movie. That's the last movie. So from cycle to cycle, it went, um, she put out the first book at the first, 
conjunction, and then the next conjunction, the last movie came out. Okay. I'm kind of cheating because there's two of the Deathly Hollows movies, but really, it's close enough. Close enough for government work. Yeah. I think, so I... I, I listened, um, spoiler alert, we're, we're working to get um, Sean Nygaard, a really talented archetypal astrologer on the show. And uh, the first time I heard Sean talk, he talked about individuals with Uranus, Pluto conjunctions in their chart. And we're going to get to that here because there's a ton of niche stuff in the book. Uh, I, I have a son who was born with the last conjunction. It happened in Aries. And um, what you get is you get people who stubbornness isn't the right way. It's it's. It's almost um, the way I describe um, Saturn in uh, Aquarius, where people have their own rules. They don't care about society's rules. They're looking right. ahead. They're going to stick to those rules. But Jupiter Uranus is almost more like, this is just who I am, and this is how I do things. And I have no choice but to do things how I do things. Um, go I mean, back or I, go I, home. <laughs> or just go your own way or go home. Um you know, I am a solo rambler, and as soon as I've been in this place, um, slinging hash, and by hash I mean uh, like a short order cook, as soon as I've been uh, slinging hash for too long that I know too many locals' names, I got to move. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jupiter, Uranus, um, it's just, it's an, a constantly, it's almost, it, it, so Tarnas talks about it going both ways. So Uranus going to Jupiter, or Jupiter going to Uranus, and I can think of it like this. Um, if you think of someone who's particularly Uranian, um, that Jupiter says, not only are you going to individuate, are you going to do your own thing, but you're going to damn well do it as big and as best as you can. Yeah. So a couple things that I thought were great examples from the last couple conjunctions. So 97, we had the height of the dot-com bubble. Uh, some of you might not be old enough to fully remember that, but during uh, the Clinton administration, basically you could take anything put dot com on the back of it and become a millionaire there was a a thing called pets.com which became the famous example that no one even knew what they were going to do they just put out the ipo pets.com and suddenly it was worth 200 million dollars now we see some of that with ipos today and the numbers are a little bigger um but at that point um the internet had just broken through as something everyone had access to and it it exploded and there, it was a train that couldn't stop. The The movie I want to point to, because again, I said I was going to get back to culture and he has a ton of movie examples. Did you know all those uh, movie makers? Uh, most of them. What page are you on? I just want to make sure I'm following along. I am on uh, 324, but I'm actually working off some of my own notes um, okay. now because I didn't. I thought that the movies, the movies start on the next page, um, 326. Uh, and he points out, so I'll bring up his examples that came earlier. So if you did have four movies that started cinema worldwide, you'd probably pick Birth of a Nation, The Jazz Singer, Citizen Kane. Um, I'm sorry, those are three movies. <laughs> and they they happened on three consecutive Jupiter-Uranus um, conjunctions. It's really almost impossible to make up, but we, we've talked previously about Uranus's... Um, influence on culture or, the, or especially the sign it's in with the last two we had two of the hugest movies we've ever had in the in the history of hollywood or cinema itself that have also led to just breakthroughs in how movies are done and, and they're two blockbusters like 
that that might sound like not as much now in a time when there's a new Avengers movie every other right. <laughs> yeah six months. But that didn't always happen. It, you, you know, blockbusters came out at once every five years uh, right. back in the day. In '97, it was a little movie you might have heard of it called Titanic. It's literally called Titanic, which the word itself means really big. Right. And I think it was the first movie that cost like a billion dollars to make. I think it it was. was. And they're just breaking the records for how much money the Titanic made now. Yeah. I I remember going to that movie in the theater and being excited about it. Did you see it too? Do you remember? I I have never seen Titanic. um, And it was because of the Celine Dion song that was like too much for me. And so I, I made, I put my, I put my flag in the ground. I, I Wait, you've Jupiter never myself. seen Titanic. I've never seen Titanic. No. Oh my god, that's crazy! I'm like the only person that's not seen or read Harry Potter, and you're the only person that's not seen Titanic. I have this. I just have to tell a quick little story. Yeah. I went to see that in '97 in my hometown of Hibbing, Minnesota. Still living there, and this little somebody brought a little girl to the theater. She's probably about five or six, and I don't remember what the movie's rated, but it gets a little bit intense, right? There's a ship sinking and people jumping and people dying. This little girl sitting in the front row starts screaming and running up the aisle during that movie and says, I can't take it anymore and like runs out of the theater. So that's very like Jupiter Uranus, I guess. Like I felt <laughs> so bad. She was just screaming. The whole theater is kind of like, oh, <laughs> but yeah, she didn't come back. <laughs> she got out of there. Now, this was also a time sort of. That is a hilarious story, and I can see how Jupiter Uranus. She's like, I must individuate. She just yes, get me on air. It's too much, too much, too too much Jupiter. So we talked about the dot com boom, and we talked about um, Titanic. I mean, you could go ten years either direction, and Titanic's the biggest movie. There's no question yeah. about it. Um, it's also the time when cell phones became something people regularly had. Um, previous to this time period. Cell phones existed, uh, but they were very expensive. It wasn't uh, normal to have a cell phone plan. And we were really only 10 years past when when cell phones were were called car phones. And they were like the size of a briefcase. Yeah, I used to have one. That was heavy. <laughs> <laughs> For safety reasons, your dad get it in case you... Oh, how through. did you know? Yep, it only dialed 911. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this is the 1997... Conjunction. The next conjunction is in 2010. Um, so it's roughly 13, 14 years. Um, 2010 is an incredible year in, in potentially more ways. Um, so I remember 2010 better. Uh, 2010 is when the iPad came out. Um, I, previous to the iPad coming out, and, and Apple had this magic touch. Um, and speaking of touching, um, it was the first touchscreen that normal people had. The, the iPhone existed. It had been out for a couple of years, but it really, uh, it was a super nerdy thing. And this is not that long ago. This is nine years ago. There, yeah. there were not many people with smartphones. A BlackBerry was more common than an iPhone at that point. Yes, It was basically just that. for checking your email, right? Like people yeah. didn't have other stuff. So in 2010, Facebook existed, but it was something people used on laptops or, or desktops. It wasn't something people constantly picked up. Twitter existed, um, but it it wasn't a nonstop flurry of activity because people didn't have the pocket devices that went with them everywhere. The iPad changed the way people related to touching that screen that really opened the door for um, the phone. And I, I would guess that at that point, 
I would guess people thought that the tablet was where everyone was heading. And a lot of people have tablets now, but the phone is clearly the dominator in the field, right? Yeah. Um, it's so weird to me that, yeah, that we've only had these in our pockets for less than 10 years. That's crazy. It's such a normal thing now. Yeah, I, I would say even less. I would say eight years. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're kind of getting in the weeds. So the iPod came out and it was huge. I cannot express to you how big it was. It really set Apple on the trajectory of being the monolith it was. Apple was not a huge company 10 years ago. I mean, it was a huge company, but it wasn't one of the like five biggest in the world. Yeah. Instagram started that year. Oh, and really? Insta okay. Yeah. Instagram might be the number one social media now. I guess I'm not a huge user of Instagram, but there are people who really only use it. I mean, there are people who are millionaires just from taking pictures of their butts and putting them on Instagram. Yes. Instagram's crazy. <laughs> um, I am, I'm more up with Instagram than you are, I think. You're the Twitter guy. Um, I didn't realize so two, it started in 2010. Okay. Keep going. Two more examples. Um, what we have... Um, so what we had in 97 was the dot-com boom. And here we can really see, this is when social media began its ascent. And so we went from this dot-com boom to a time when algorithms really became the dominator. And algorithms are what shows you what Facebook shows you. It's how Google finds your searches. It's how creepy. Twitter displays Twitter. They are creepy. It's how Ugh. YouTube um, pumps out. Um, stuff that you may or may not want, but definitely will end up titillating and arousing you. Um, th this period of time was when all this stuff broke through. Um, the big movie at this time was a monster, probably the next giant movie since Titanic, and it was Avatar. All right. James Cameron, what's going on in his chart? <laughs> you know, he's got, yeah. I think I looked, but I don't, um, it was notable, but it wasn't um, Jupiter Uranus, like, natally. Um, okay. This movie was where modern blockbusters came from. No one used the green screen like um, like Cameron did and, and really created a just a universe, a rich, colorful, decorative universe. It's why we have the Avengers now. We wouldn't have them if it wasn't for Avatar. Right. There, it was super weird for movies to be in 3D. Now, almost every blockbuster that comes out, you could see it in 3D, too. Yep, that's true. It, it was a monster. It was the first movie to make, I think it was a full billion dollars or $2 billion, whatever it was. Um, and it's now, like, it's it's since Titanic, you look on that list, Avatar's that next movie that's that's just being, um, you know, Avengers Endgame is, is breaking its records. Mm -hmm. um, so we had Harry Potter come out in 97. And this might be a, a deep cut for 2010, but there's a book called from Jonathan Franzen called Freedom. And it was a huge book, especially for nerdy, bookish white boys like me. Um, it it uh, pointed a finger um, at white culture. Um, it was a it was a giant book. One of the he's he's come under some cultural criticism because he he writes in in women's voices. We've had other authors, uh, famous authors that were Americans, come under criticism for that too. Most notably, Philip Roth. But this this is probably. And I uh, come at me, the greatest novel written um, 10 years before, 10 years after. And uh, and it came out that year as well. Uh, and he hasn't been able to to repeat it. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be the book he's remembered for, even if he's won a couple more nerdy awards for for others. Um, finally, what I wanted to point out 
between these two time periods is 1997. We had um, a huge wave election. Um, Bill Clinton got uh, voted back in, but there was this big um, pushback. Uh, it was it was just after just around all the impeachment nonsense with Clinton, and uh, and it was a huge election. 2010 was the Tea Party election. This huge monolithic push, this takeover of Congress uh, by these people with these, um, uh, let's say, individuating positions, uh, and so we see it all through culture. And uh, in case <laughs> in case people are wondering, like, oh yeah, couldn't it have been any year when these things came out? I don't. I think it's it's rough, especially following up on Tarnas's great examples, for anyone to point to a movie in between those two um, that was as big and as ground shaking. Politically, those are clearly the two points um, that really had turned and had a lasting impact on culture. There, there was a big wave election uh, in W's second term, but that uh, that flipped again just a, a few years later, um, and. You know, no one can question Harry Potter, and I will stand on a soapbox and argue for Franzen's freedom. What do you think about that? What's the other book that Franzen wrote that's pretty well known? Corrections. Um, I feel like there's another one. Uh, it's on my shelf. Uh, sorry, I'll have Purity? to look at it. He just wrote Purity. Yeah. Okay. I haven't read any of his stuff, but one of them was calling to me. I know I have it on the shelf. It's, maybe it's that one. I recommend Freedom. Uh, freedom, some of it takes place in St. Paul. Yeah, maybe that's one. Where, okay. That's I think that's where you one I have. Live. Yes, it is. That's I'm in the basement in St. Paul. Um, I, th I think we beat uh, Uranus, um, Jupiter to death. I think people get an idea. I want to really emphasize how deep into the rabbit hole he gets. And we're going to get to Nisha in just a second, because it's the only time in the book where he looks at someone's whole chart and really gets into it. <clears throat> and I really like that he waited this long to do it. I really like that he used Nisha. Um, one last example. So there was a conjunction in... 54 and 55. And this is when James Dean's uh, big movies came out. East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. James Bean, Dean was the rebel. Like, he he is the archetype rebel from the 50s. Can you Hell think yeah, of anyone else? Um, no, just him. Um, and then his kind of characters and persona was created in different movies and shows over the years. But, yep, he was the guy. That there'd be no Fonzie without James Dean. That's who I was thinking of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that all happened. All of his movies came out during this Uranus-Jupiter conjunction. James Dean died one month after the conjunction ended. Talking about just flaming, flaming hot, individuating and going away, uh, which yeah. oftentimes, you know, Uranus can be compared to a lightning strike. A Sudden of, departure also. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Mundane example, the Statue of Liberty. And he talks about this. Uh, I'll read his sentence. In one statue, the two distinctive symbols of the two gods, Jupiter's elevating crown and Prometheus's liberating fire. And I thought that was really cool. Um, just a, a, I let that stick with you as, as a symbol for, the, um, for this um, aspect. Now we get to Nisha, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but but Nietzsche was born with a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction um, and Sun opposite Pluto. And he really breaks down um, how these 
what happened through Nisha's life. Um, the this uh, this burning desire to shine um, th that pushes against this deep, powerful, transformative part of himself and how they're in inextricably linked. Uh, also, this need to be himself, to individuate. Most of Nisha's books, and he points this out over and over, he wrote to no fanfare. Um, after he passed away um, is when we really, we uh, when, when culture caught up to Nietzsche. Um, yes, and his birth chart is on page 343 if you were following along and want to see yeah, a visual of uh, that. And if you're not, if you don't have the book, we have October 15th, 1944. At no, 1844. Oh, 1844. <laughs> uh, at 10 a.m. LMT in Rockin, Prussia. And Rockin is spelled R-O-C-K-E-N. Um the reason I want to bring this up is that I pulled up Nisha's chart. Um, two things I found really fascinating. Number one, Nietzsche was, had chronic illnesses, especially headaches. Um, and what you have in Nietzsche's chart is uh, the sun being in the 12th house and Pluto being in the sixth. So that's someone who, um, you know, you're going to point to certain health troubles with this because the sixth house is the house of health. And so here you have someone with chronic health issues. Also, you have someone who uh, is would tuck away from culture. He was a recluse often during his life. In fact, when he gave up um, his academic career, he went and just climbed the mountains. He like got away from society. And, and you have the sun in the 12th, solitude. Um, the other thing I and thought that was... Was Pluto and Aries for him then? Since the sun is in the 12th house? Uh, sun, he's October 15th, so he is a um, Libra, right? And opposite Pluto, so Pluto's an Aries for yep. him. Um, and Aries rules the head. So that's why I'm like bringing that up for his headaches. Blinding headaches, transformational oh, right. headaches. Yeah. I, so so the thing, when you look at the chart in the book, that's a great point. And I was going to bring that up, but I don't, I'm looking at the book. The book doesn't have the houses or the signs in it. He never he, talks about the signs. I mean, rarely. He doesn't or really. The, or the houses, really. Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought that was so important about that point, and thank you for bringing that up, is that this conjunction between Jupiter and Uranus, they're they're not in the same house. They're only about four degrees away, and he uses these huge um, arcs. But it really made me think that when I look at new charts, I should uh, try to put some blinders on and not overlook some of these major aspects, especially when they're uh, from the outer planets. Because I can't, I don't know that I can think of an example in Western history that more Uranus Jupiter than Nietzsche, especially when uh, we talk about some of the later aspects hitting this. Um, and so I think that's just an important thing to note that uh, just another service Tarnus does to us as astrologers. Did yes. you like the Nietzsche stuff? How much did you know about Nietzsche before this? Well, I was going to tell you that it made me inspired to try and pick up some of his works again. I do have Thus Spoke Zarathustra on my mm -hmm. shelf, and I tried to get through it, and I was like, ah, I need some help with this one. This is kind of some deep stuff. But Tarnas has uh, given me a new set of, um, I don't know, a new inspiration to pick him up again. Just like quotes like, one must have chaos inside oneself to give birth to a dancing star. That is my jam. <laughs> and I just think I have to read his work slowly and kind of absorb it. Uh, cause he, again, is just this deep thinker and I do had, I have trouble with his book. I tried it about a year ago, but I'm think I'm going to go headstrong and pick it back up again. So he wrote a book 
of what is more or less parables or and um, affirmations, just short bits. Uh, I, I would almost point you towards that if you just wanted an introduction. Thus spoke Zarathustra is like lock yourself in a room for two months. Well, I mean, that's like, considered his greatest work, right? That one. I thought that was his kind of like masterpiece, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, but what's the book that? What's the I one don't called believe it you? is, uh, and I'm gonna not. I'm, I'm not. I don't want to uh, pull it up the internet because I think I've spent like at least half of all of these podcasts talking about the philosophers he talks about. <laughs> well, I assume. Have you read all of Nietzsche's Nietzsche's? Oh no, 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 Oh, you have not. Um, okay. I believe the one I did read is the one that is the Whopper. Um, Nietzsche's a, a thinker that needs to be dealt with historically. Um, Schopenhauer was more my jam. So when I exited the um, the annals of the philosophy department, I sort of knew which which directions I wanted to go in. And I'd, I'd spent enough time with Nietzsche. I did the same thing with Freud. Um, I got, uh, Freud was a, someone who's a, a big uh, part of cultural studies and comparative literature, which is my other degree. But after I was done, I, I never read Freud again. I didn't, didn't see the need. Gotcha. Um, so I think that really gets us uh, through um, Jupiter, Uranus, and that brings us to Uranus, Neptune. Now this cycle is way longer. I think this is yeah. the longest cycle we talk about. It is 172 years in length. Um, and so sometimes I feel like his um, his his arcs are so big, like 15 degrees in either direction is huge. Yeah. I think when we're talking about a 172 year cycle, I think it makes more sense that big ones because um, they're just not even close to each other for so long. Just, you know, 10 generations of humans or whatever. Well, what I wonder, I, maybe he did explain it. I missed it, but I don't know why he did. He pick 15 degrees or that's just in his research where he found, you know, the the most stuff happening. He says repeatedly that it's that it's in his research. OK, um, so he didn't just start with I'm going to look at 15 degrees. It just kind of happened. Yeah. I, um, and I suppose you have to pick a spot to eventually have to say yeah. this is where I'm I'm looking. Yeah. Things that I thought were extremely important about this um and if i didn't say it he calls this um he names the chapter after uh kind of a, a pithy a, a, a pithy version of this and it's epochal shifts and cultural vision um and he points to lots of guys um who who were born or who had prominent interactions with this and some of them are Cezanne. Picasso, Brock, Matisse, Joyce, Proust, uh, Stravinsky, Schorenberg. Um, there's like 30 more people. Um, but what I, I wanted to, um, rather than um, break this all down um, in, the, in the way he does, I wanted to talk about what is a huge part of everyone's existence right now. And that's that we had this conjunction happen in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we both know tons of people with this in their chart natally. They're, they're millennials. Um, the millennials have uh, a Uranus-Neptune um, conjunction. Do you, does this come up for you a lot in readings? Uh, a little bit. Um, I don't do too many readings for the younger uh, people, but they would be 
between 20 and 30 years old, I guess, um, for the major uh, Uranus-Neptune um, conjunction. But yeah, it does. Uh, I know, like you said, I know a lot of people and I am fascinated by the 90s now that we're out of them. And I'm looking at the 90s with a different lens now that I know astrology and his um, chapter chapters on it are great. Um, where do you want to go? What do you want to start with with this? Do you want to just hit the 90s or do you want to go through history? I, I kind of want to just do the 90s, but I want to read his piece on Neptune first. And I know you have some stuff written down, so I'll let you drive when we get to the 90s. Um, so this is uh, Tarnas's definition of Neptune. The Neptune archetype is also associated with illusion and delusion, deception and self-deception, confusion, ambiguity, rejection, maya. It rules both the positive and negative meanings of enchantment, both poetic vision and wishful fantasy mysticism and madness, higher realities, and delusional unreality. It informs all that is paradoxically united. It transcends and confuses attempts to maintain strict boundaries, definitions, and dichotomies. It is the archetypal principle of multidimensional and meta-empirical and meta-aphorical and multivalent. Um, so when I talk about Neptune... Um, I have a whole spiel, but I really just talk about dissolving. Hard to get your handle on. Fog. Yeah. Um, and most of this, I think, happened in Capricorn, which he doesn't bring up, right? Um, yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah, we got some Capricorn stuff, different Capricorn stuff going on now. But I, the 90s, so I like, I was going to actually say the word dissolving with Neptune, kind of dissolving the Capricorn structures and then maybe some lightning bolt, holy shit news um, coming to our consciousness, like the nineties, I think of like the gay nineties, um, but people are coming out as becoming more accepted, dissolving of that, um, more of a more comfortable living in your own skin. And then also like the church scandals started, especially oh, yeah. the Catholic church started to come to our consciousness. Suddenly, uh, Uranus is like, boom, here it is. Um, Neptune's saying this has been going on for years. You've all been deluded. Um, what else? I, that's all I had for my examples which are the biggest for me um he doesn't oh and then now with the people born and he says the word fluidity a lot yeah um and now it's the gender fluidity right I, this is um, a huge one for me yeah very huge for me um that is a thing in everyone's consciousness now what's male what's female he she pronouns all that stuff and he maybe didn't this book was published 2004 i think that's when he finished it um didn't know i guess how big this would become with the with the people born in the in the 90s during this conjunction that is huge right now um so we'll still we're still figuring it out <laughs> um what do you have for the 90s uh, what's biggest in your consciousness for me that was the big takeaway also okay. there was a shift that in some ways was neptunian and, and i want to bring in capricorn into this the big change in the 80s was the early 80s was the end of the madman madman era and it happened in a lot of ways because of dui laws funny enough um and that's when we had the saturn pluto conjunction so this constriction took place uh where you know it wasn't cool for uh businessmen mostly then to hop off after work and have three cocktails 
and then hop into their automobile and drive off to the suburbs. They were getting pulled over and, and those and serious tickets sometimes going to jail. And it, it ended that culture. In the 90s, the dot-com bubble that took place during the same time, and I think there's a ton of Uranus, Neptune in the internet. I mean, just think of, there's no end to the size of the internet. It's diffuse and huge. It's hard to get a grasp on. And it's also incredibly Uranian. It's a place where people can individuate, can break free of their lives, where, you know, it's almost the new gold rush at definitely was then uh, where people can cast out. Um, But part of all this money coming to people for the first time through the internet in the nineties was people sitting in their basement or sitting with 10 other people coding. Um, Those people weren't wearing suits and ties. The nineties was the end of that era. Now people still dress up to go to work in a lot of professions, but previous to that, um, you know, that the eighties didn't break the need for, for formal business attire. It, you know, you couldn't have a cocktail at lunch, but you, you still had to get dressed up every day. The 90s was really the time when you saw people dressed a little schlubby who were suddenly billionaires and, and no one was going to tell Bill Gates that he couldn't wear his pocket protector to the board meeting because, you know, he could buy and sell you five million times over. Yep. Um, I don't know actually the history of the DUI laws. Um, but we can go on to <laughs> drugs too, because so like oh, in the good, late sixties, yeah. it was psychedelics. There's a different conjunction going on. And the nineties, it was more opiates. We're kind of getting, that was the drug of choice now. And, you know, not to esca- escapism, um, yeah. kind of that numbing and that's more opiates, you know, for drugs. And then the psychedelics are a different vibration but yeah opiates really became that's when it became a problem i think i talked about this during the uranus uh podcast too um or maybe i i recall talking about it previously in the podcast it definitely was the time of opiates um grunge music and uh kind of that west coast culture was in lots of ways tied um to especially the abuse of that but in addition we had for the first time a thawing of some of the the drug war um, that was Reagan was elected in the early 80s during that Saturn Pluto conjunction, pushing this idea that all drugs are bad. If you do any drugs, you're going to jail. Here are the drugs I'm talking about, uh, not stuff you get from your doctor. The 90s uh, was a time when we first saw medical marijuana laws being passed. So this breakthrough um, of the other thing Neptune's often related to altered states substance abuse. Um, so there was a lot of that. There was definitely um, some taboos that people pushed towards. Uh, and we did see a lot of people OD on heroin and it was a big problem then. Not that that's gone away. I mean, once Neptune then went into um, Pisces. Pisces, you know, 15 years later or whatever, we're having, we're going through a worse epidemic now with, with uh, opioids and, uh, and that type of stuff. But um, I, I think you can definitely point to this idea of Uranus, the needle, you know, and uh, Neptune, the drugs. And that that's how heroin was done then. It was shot into you. Yes. And then I want to switch gears and talk about some of my favorite movies from the 90s. Oh, yeah. and, and The Matrix is one of them. Oh. So this kind of shocking theory, you, you know, Uranus. Um, I think people were, were shocked. I was shocked. Uh, I love that movie. And then Neptune, we're all living in this, um, uh, The Matrix, which is... Uh, construct of reality our reality is not reality that's neptune stuff and this movie kind of brought that to her and there's a i can't find the page i'm like struggling here uh he lists a of um a bunch of movies that had similar 
kind of themes. I think another one was the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind Truman show. Your reality is actually not reality. Um, That was a string of themed movies in the nineties with that during this conjunction. So people love Pearl jam in the nineties and my jam was the stone temple pilots. Um, So I love the matrix too. um, Just like I love Pearl jam, but my jam was the blade movies. Or Wesley Snipes. Ah, oh, I love yeah, Blade. Yeah. I have all those too. The vampires. Yeah. So that that fits into that archetype, right? So Neptune, you don't really understand what the structures of society are. Really, there is this underground group of uh, of vampire mafioso who uses blood banks to feed themselves. Um, you you just uh, it's it's the same type of theme. Like the world is not what you perceive it to be. Yes, that was, I think, when all the vampire movies started coming out, too. You're right. What's that other one with um, Kate Beckinsale? There's a bunch of those, too. Oh, those yeah. In the 90s. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? There was lots of that, wasn't there? N- no, it was, um, she was, uh, uh, I'll think of it. Yeah, there's like, there's six of them now. And then I think um, <laughs> I'm the, the, video, the, um, the video game movies started came, coming out, too, oh, I yeah. think, more uh-huh. in the 90s. So, like, Tomb Raider and this virtual reality we've been playing for years. Then they started making movies um, out of those. Another so, great example things. for the cycles from 97 to 2010 is that about that time, about 97 is when you could start playing video games online. Uh, and by 2010, it's super common. And now, of course, it's exploded yes. to, to new heights. Now, um, I think actually it's just been officially um, categorized as an addiction. Video game. Oh, video gaming. sure. Well, no, I think it just came out. Ago couple months ago people yeah. make money there's professional sports that people play playing video games uh there's i don't understand all of it but people make money just playing video games there's this whole thing called twitch where people sign up for an account and other people watch them play and they get sponsors and and make money like video games are nuts it didn't slow down <laughs> after that the 90s. yeah that is crazy so uh the last thing i want to talk about is is he does spend a couple chapters at the very end or a couple chunks of space just discussing that there was a lot he didn't get to and anyone who's listening to this podcast knows you know not bringing up the house and the signs um while i find that the planets are the foundation of astrology um there you know i would never um consult a chart without looking at those two things and he brings that up and he also says hey there are other aspects major aspects i didn't address for example we only have one example of Pluto, Uranus, and Neptune being all in trines and sharing helpful relationship. And that was the point in the Renaissance where we had Michelangelo doing his greatest works in the Sixteen Chapel. And he had five or six other examples. And again, he really puts this backdrop of Uranus-Pluto and then the uh, Saturn-Pluto um, cycles but he points out consistently that there are these other triggering events. And, and that I thought that try and talk was important. Where I want to wrap up is he, he gives us this list of upcoming um, uh, outer planet alignments. And this is how old this book was. Um, they, they, they all took place around 2010, about 2008 to 2010. Um, and wow, well, probably in our entire lifetimes, that'll be the pace center, at least I hope, I hope it's the pace center. I hope n- nothing beats it. Um, but that was the election of the first black president of the United States. That was um, the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. That was when the United States, um, through our market economy, crashed the global um, financial system. So um, it, he really 
five years before it happened, laid out those dates. Um, he didn't go into it too far, but he did talk about this idea that people need to live their lives and participate in the transits. That while um, there are definitely things we can point to that are going to be uh, prevailing themes, um, you know, people need to live their lives and, and work with um, the, the planetary uh, archetypes as they emerge. Um, what did, how did you feel about his treatment of that? You mean leaving the book with unanswered questions? I, I think he tried to address the idea of fate versus free will uh, at the very oh, end. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. What did you think about how he, he worked with that? I, I guess I didn't pick up on that. Um, he's, he did say we're heading towards, or he seems like we're heading towards, you know, this turning point and it's up to us to do something about it. So yeah, that, that would be uh, free will. And again, it's a little doom and gloom with what's going on in the sky right now. Um, I, I, do you have any idea if he's planning to follow up or write another book and, or go through this one and do another updated version? I don't. That's a good question. We could, <clears throat> when we get him on the show, we'll ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He needs to come on the show. Um, I want to wrap this up by talking about Saturn Pluto, which is upcoming. And really we're in it now. Saturn and Pluto are only three degrees yes. apart. Like we're in a Saturn Pluto time period. And when, when he talks about this, he talks about a reemergence of conservative, um, maybe dictatorial leadership, uh, the, the retracting of some uh, liberal and democratic norms, uh, I want to, and it's easy to point to. In our own country, we have um, a president who is very much a fan of other leaders who um, are far right and, and um, not giant fans of of democracy, of free speech, of of free press. Um, we have leaders um, in places like uh, the Philippines, South America, who are avowed nationalists. There is a series this week, so it's the 14th today, and it's been all week on The Daily, which is a podcast in the New York Times, where they go through Europe and look at these far-right um, groups, political groups. They went to Italy. They went to Germany. They talked to leaders of Brexit. They also went to Hungary and to Poland. Uh, and it's chilling. And how amazingly well these archetypes of these leaders, of this wave across the planet, fit with a book that Tarnas wrote almost 20 years ago now. It's just really unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't knock it out of the park further. Yes, it's a little scary. <laughs> We've talked about that at length in other pods, but um, the exact, the next exact conjunction of Saturn-Pluto is January 12th, 2020 in Capricorn, which I just found out is Rob Zombie's birthday. Um, <laughs> so who knows? I mean, the last time they were conjunct, we had the Cold War. Uh, the time before that, where there was another war, nobody wants war. I, I want to believe that. So, um, let's use these transformational powers and restructuring powers to the best and highest vibration that we can, each of us, and we can all contribute to the collective. Um, with, on that light note, <laughs> <laughs> right. we're, we're pushing an hour. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we really had fun with this. The next book we're going to do is going to oh, yeah, be Carolyn Casey. Carolyn Casey. Book. Which book? I, I totally forgot which book it is. 
Uh, it is Helping the Gods Work for You by Carolyn Casey. This is a much shorter one. I don't know that we're going to do a three-part episode again. <laughs> Ooh, maybe uh, it's very relevant from what we just talked about. I haven't read the book or read about it, but um, using the, I assume, the archetypes to work for us. And... It's a much more personal book. <laughs> okay. Um, it, this, I mean, it, it really, one of the reasons I wanted to do it is, number one, Carolyn Casey's the best. More people should know about her. Uh, but two, it's really talks to the individual um in carolyn have you wait have you read it yeah uh well i got the book on tape and i listened to the whole thing i'm gonna buy it too so that i can you know take notes and write things down (laughs) so i can destroy it basically um, with my pen (laughs) yeah the next book club probably episode will be this fall so if you want to pick up the book for the summer we'll probably tape that episode maybe august september and you guys can follow along it'll be just probably one episode i'm assuming yeah, and that's going to be the goal. Okay. Again, if people, we have a couple other ideas, but if there's a book people really want to do with us, um, grab it. I couldn't recommend Carolyn Casey's book more highly um, if just to uh, be exposed to Carolyn. Uh, she's an amazing astrologer and, and, you, and again, totally different. Uh, psychologically based, um, super witchy. Before that was cool. Uh, she's the best. All right, any last thoughts? Otherwise, I will sign us off. Please do. We'd like to thank July Fighter for our opening and closing music. Please check out July Fighter on any music streaming service. We'd also love for you to check out our Patreon page. We'd like to keep this pod going past the Saturn-Pluto conjunction of 2020, so please throw us even just a buck a month. You don't know how much that will help us um, keep us recording uh, 2020 and beyond. And please check out our Twitter page. We have Facebook and we have Instagram. We're always looking for, <clears throat> excuse me, more episode ideas, book ideas. You can email at thebasementastrologers at gmail.com. Check out our website at thebasementastrologers.com. And you can fill out our contact form if you can't find our email. And we'll respond as soon as we can. Good night, Earthlings.